This is the Author Archive podcast. I've been thoroughly enjoying a book, a memoir by Jeremy Warman called The Way to Hornsey Rise. It reminded me a little bit of Laurie Lee, Cider with Roses. There's no Rosie, but there is a Layla. The Way to Hornsey Rise. Where is Hornsey Rise, Jeremy? Hornsey Rise is in North East London. And uh, what's, what's special about it? I think at that time, it was uh, some blocks of flats in Hornsey Rise were the largest squats in Europe. Uh, and now, of course, it's near Crouch End and it's become a very fashionable area. But then it was more down at heel. And you took to living there for a while. I lived there for a while and it was um, probably the most formative influence on my life in late 1975 until early 1976, a short but intense experience. The memoir, when you woke up and found yourself alive in this world, and we all do that and find if we're lucky, there are two people that are interested in us that we call parents. Um, mine, <laughs> mine weren't the ones that I designed if I could have chosen. What were yours like? Well, uh, they were the core of my problems in some ways. And uh, my mother was a very uh, charismatic, um, very attractive alcoholic. And my father was a solid middle-class professional man. He was a chartered surveyor, 13 years older than my mum, who in his early days had had a very successful life. But I think they'd had a very disillusioning marriage. And so the sort of the veneer of my very middle class life in Surrey was that it was a veneer. And my father was an alcoholic, too, and grew very ill. Uh, so that was the kind of the background that I was working from. And did that mean that you were a miserable Jeremy or um, did they make it all right for you? <laughs> that, that's a good question. The, the truth is, I, I wasn't especially a miserable Jeremy. Um, in the early days, it was rather an idyllic little childhood. Um, I'd gone to a rather smart little pre-prep school, if you like, on the Wentworth estate, and I had nice friends, and my mum was full of fun. Um, and it wasn't so bad. Uh, it, was, it grew progressively worse as my mother became more alcoholic and as I realised what was going on. But the early days were, were happy. I was a happy little kid, you know. What expectations were there? You, you, you <laughs> used the description middle class. And I hoped growing up that this class thing would just melt away in the summer sun, but it hasn't. Where were you on, uh, on the chart? We were well-to-do middle class. And I mean, the, the, the kind of environment, uh, environment I moved in and my mum moved in, I think you would call sort of upper middle class. Uh, my dad, for all his sort of conservative feelings was actually quite radical and neither of my parents were snobby um, at all so we were if you like on those kind of boundaries and that was fine with me uh, my mum's grandfather had been a, a coal miner in the Wigan colliery and by the time he was 30 he'd made a million pounds and become a coal mine owner in India and a gold mine owner and set the family up on a totally different course of life which my Gosh. mother adapted very well, I think. Um, one of the early chapters in your memoir is when you and your mum meet a woman who was born into the world as Diana Fluck. Yes. But changed, <laughs> changed her name. Yes. Um, 
and um, uh, the Naked Ape Man, Desmond <laughs> Morris, was her very first boyfriend. Ah, um, yes, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, yes, and he spoke very fondly of the woman who became Diana Dawes. Yes. How did you come across Diana Dawes? Well, that's an important question. Um, as I said, I went to school on the Wentworth estate, and one of my friends lived next door to Diana Dawes. And when I was very young, she threw a tennis ball back to us that we were playing cricket with. Um, and she did have a swimming pool, but it was always broken and never working. So when her, <laughs> when her swimming pool was broken, she swam at Great Foster's, which was a upmarket hotel outside Egham, where I swam with my mum. And uh, we went in one day to swim and she recognized me and did ask me, uh, you know, oh, how's my little cricketer? And after <laughs> that, my mum and her struck up a kind of an acquaintanceship. And I think my mum was invited round there to a party or to drinks a few times. They liked each other and they, they might also have known people in common on the Wentworth estate, mutual friends and so on. I, I can't be totally sure about that in this memoir. I've tried to be scrupulous about the truth, but it, it, all those little details are impossible quite to know. So did that give the young you just a peek through the curtains of celebrity? Yes, yes, it did. Um, it was both embarrassing and kind of flattering, you know, and my mum lapped it up. She thought this was, this was great. So, yes, I, I think it probably did do that. Yes. You talk about you've tried to be scrupulously honest, yeah. um, but um, it, I, I always think that if it's easy to read, it's probably because it was well written and it is delightful to read. But was, did you have to scratch your head from time to time or did, they, did the memories just flow? I think something that set my, one of my mother's lovers was uh, Neville Priddo, Neville Priddo, Uncle Neville. He'd been in the Indian Army. And um, he committed suicide in 1964 and he'd lived in the bottom of our house. And I found um, an auction where his OBE had been auctioned um, in about 2015. And that just opened up all kinds of memories. And then from then, I think I dealt with those memories truthfully. Of course, in a memoir, dialogue is partly made up and the scenes are maybe extended a little but the basic nuggets of it are true and I think people could uh, test that proposition out did Jeremy go to prep school did he run away when he said he did and so on and that was very important to me. If you knew um, looking back that your mother had um, lovers were you always secure of uh, where your genetic inheritance came from? N no I wasn't secure about that and uh, I'd often, as I got a little bit older, I thought, oh, well, Uncle Neville could well have been um, my, my father. And later on in my mother's life, when she was going senile, but had become very benign and was still immensely uh, charming. And if you went out with, if I took her out for lunch, people would say, your mother, she's so beautiful and so on and so forth. At that point, I asked her, I said, look, mum, I, I, I really wouldn't mind if Uncle Neville was my father. Um, was he? Just let me know. She said, oh, no, darling, not at all. I can absolutely guarantee that. There was no sex in Neville. And those were her, her words. <laughs> and that was my mum, you know, and she, I could just tell she was telling the truth. And my dear old dad 
afterthought that I was, uh, he was my dad. Yeah. Right. Um, you, you mentioned casually there the running away from school, which you did do. Which I did, yeah. Um, why? When I was 13 and I'd left my prep school, which is a terribly tough prep school where I'd boarded, Halebury Prep School in Windsor, and I'd survived that in the end, fine. I'd become sporty and I made people laugh. I was okay. I felt more secure at school than at home. Um, my mother that summer had a, her first of her really sort of bad episodes where she became violent and aggressive. And she was having an affair with the man who drove my, my dad to work, a chauffeur, if you like. Not that we were that posh, really, but... He had to get to work. It was a horrendous summer. I went off to my public school, Halebury in Hartford. And I just, the school would have been bearable after my prep school, I could have survived anything. But I was terrified about what would happen to my mom if I wasn't at home. And after a month, I just made up my mind I had to be at home. It really was, I think, as truthful as that. And within the first term, I ran away three times. And they knew I wasn't going to go back. And that was it. So you become a bit of a problem. What did they do with you? I, I'd become a big problem and no one really knew what to do with me. And I'd, be, I'd become a problem. And if you like, an embarrassment. Um, but then by, by good fortune, a, a, a nice teacher from my prep school, Mr. Blundell, had set up a little tutorial college in Windsor, the Windsor Tutorial College. And six months after I ran away, I ended up there. And it was full of rejects and actors' daughters and all kinds of odd bods, people like me. And I felt at home there. And, and, that, you, was, and that was okay. You fitted in. <laughs> I fitted in fine. Yeah. So where are we? What year are we now? That would be 1968, 68 and a half, as it were. So that would be 68 or 1969. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel that's quite important because 1967, famously the summer of love, um, and yes. I think all of us that were alive at that time, yeah. music was a big thing, wasn't yes. it? It was, a, it was a huge thing for me. And I can say this with all truthfulness. The first album I bought and loved was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967 when I was 13 from Record Wise in Egham. I played it all <laughs> the time. I cherished it. Uh, it meant a new universe to me. And that set me off on a path that was, you know, different from what might have been expected from my background, if you like. And I've kind of never looked back even now, really. And did music these days, when you can stream it, seems yeah. expendable. And you don't listen to a whole album. You yes. listen to a track. Well, you listen to half a track, mm. maybe. But yeah. did you find comfort and solace? in that record? Yes, th that's an excellent question. The answer is I did, and all kinds of records after that as I got a bit older. Uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, a little later, I think, The Incredible String Band, or maybe the similar time. They kind of meant everything to me. You know, they were, they were a kind of a security and a kind of a way out. And, and I did trusted you, it. Yeah. Yes. And didn't you feel that sometimes you could be lonely in the universe, but the people that made that record were like you, so it was less lonely? I, I felt exactly that. Yes. <laughs> so you're at this school, which is a mixed school. It was a mixed school, yes. Tell me about that. It was a, a little bit bohemian, but the teaching wasn't too bad. And I was 
beginning to get interested in girls and sex and stuff. And uh, this lovely girl joined who I just liked very much. And she was very good looking, um, Layla. And um, we got to know each other. And that was my first intense emotional and sexual experience. And she was a mixed race. She, her dad was a her dad was a, a Caribbean, but of Indian descent, and he was a solicitor. Um, we got on very well for some years. Yeah, probably. I mean, she sounds very exotic and totally delightful. Yes. I mean, as as a lad, probably not totally self convinced of your own work. Did you feel that she was probably a little bit out of your league? At yes, some point? I felt she was much out of my league, and. Uh, <laughs> You know, she was a very mature kind of 15-year-old and she was a kind of very attractive 15-year-old that all the older boys with cars or whatever would ask her out. So I didn't think there'd be a chance for me, but I was driven by desire and lust and also great admiration for her. I liked her very much. And you write about her brilliantly. Do you ever think, oh, I wonder what happened to her? Do yes. you ever think, you know, wonder where she is now? Yes, I do think that. Um, we broke up because our parents sort of broke us up and she moved away. Um, I was asked to leave the Windsor Tutorial College because of our relationship. Then she went out with one of my good friends um, and then she wanted to go out with me again, but I kind of just got over my heartbreak. So I didn't. And where she is now, I do not know. And I'd, I'd love to know, you know. Heartbreak it takes a while to get over, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So after that, did you go into higher education? My mother went round the world. After my dad died, she inherited money and she went round the world. And I was left, I was left in Egham and I, I gave up at the Windsor Tutorial College. It was hopeless and the A-level scheme there was rubbish. So I got a job at RecordWise and then I got a job for a local newspaper selling advertising stuff. And then eventually I, I was actually offered a, a Thompson training course. And oddly enough, I don't regret not taking that, even looking back now. My A-levels, I did them later at, the Wind uh, at Brooklyn's Technical College. I got a couple of crappy uh, A-levels. And in the end, I ended up at uh, the Polytechnic of North London doing a philosophy degree, which is actually very good. But I, I mean, I just didn't like it. It wasn't really what I wanted to do, but I, I did see it through and... and finished it um, and that's funny enough yeah. funnily yeah. enough i um i was offered a place at that place once and i okay. went to see it and I, I didn't like it so i didn't uh, go yeah <laughs> what i did envy you was the job at the record shop in windsor because i remember buying records there yeah. um i thought that would be a dream job yeah in, in fact i was for a little while i was running his little tiny branch in stains and yes, I did like it, but that branch shut down and I thought, well, I can't make a living at this. I, I did sort of love it. Yes, for a little while. But no, you know, some restless spirit drove me on and has driven me on all my life, I guess. Right. Now, another thing that you did that I was very close, but I didn't go to was the Isle of Wight Festival. And you went. I did go. And about half, half the world claims to have been there. Yes. But I, I was there and I was there with my friend, uh, acquaintance Nick Stewart and his big sister who kind of looked after us. And it was an extraordinary experience. And 
yes, I won't ever forget it, and I often think about it. Um, yes, you saw Jimmy, Jimi Hendrix live, you said. I did, yes. Just about three months before um, he, he died from a drugs overdose or six yes. months, whatever. Yeah. Now, we've talked about going to Hornsey Rise. Um, yeah. Was the... Uh, was the, the, the was this, it was the time of the counterculture. Was the counterculture living in your bosom at that point? It was. For me, it was a very exciting possibility. I like the ecological aspects of it. It was a way to get away from my background. And it really, it was what my hopes were pinned to. You know, I wanted it to work. And I believe totally in it. Yes. And is that what um, nudged you to Hornsey Rise? Very much so. Yeah, I thought, right, this is the real thing. I can join the grown-up hippies and have an alternative life and be a very happy Jeremy. And it turned ah. out not like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's like so much in life. The dream and the reality were at slight odds. But you did meet this, an, another woman that you write so beautifully about. Yes, I, I, I did. Um, and again, it was a, a girl who seemed out of my league, although she liked me and she was very flirty and so on. Uh, and she was a very dangerous creature, really. Um, and very lovely, absolutely lovely. And we did eventually have a relationship and it was very wild and exciting and sort of fulfilled all my dreams in some ways. But she was a drug addict, which I did not know at first, and it became increasingly obvious. And then she did die from, a, from, a, from an overdose. I suppose it was heroin. I don't know. And that, that was it. No one, no one knew much about her or who her parents were or anything. So it was like a kind of a sudden end. And that was the end of a me my memoir and the end of uh, a chapter of my life. And it makes uh, a really dramatic end to the read. Yeah. It's beautifully done. Did you enjoy the writing and the remembering? I enjoyed it, yes. And it was also very painful. But this time, it was painful for real. I was dealing with real things from someone who'd moved beyond it. And so it was... It was cathartic. It was therapeutic. But I wanted it to be a proper story as well, you know. So that's where the, I hope, the novelistic skills came into it um, and the shaping oh. skills. Yes. So after this, after this experience, when you're still young at the end of the, at the, end of the story, yes. what, did you, what did you do with life? What do you do with life? Well, uh, um, I picked myself up. I finished my philosophy degree. I was lucky to slip into a job that I much enjoyed for some years at Hackney Adult Education Institute, teaching literacy, starting fresh start courses for people who hadn't ever been in further education. I then did a part-time degree at Birkbeck in English, which was a brilliant chap next chapter of my life. Uh, and then I went to Cambridge for a PhD. Then I began teaching at, at Birkbeck to American students. I was beginning to get things published, articles, short stories, but nothing ever quite came off. So I'm kind of still on that path and I'm writing a, a novel now that I hope will happen. But in between, you know, I got married and life went on and we lived in Hackney and we had a lovely daughter and it's not been a bad life at all. And I've had lots of fun 
as well. Well, and hopefully this book will do as well as it deserves. Um, I've loved it. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I hope it does. It's, it's The Road to Hornsey Rise, and it's the first, well, it's the memoir from Jeremy Warman. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you.